We see how she gave her a son named Samuel. And that Samuel grew up to be a prophet who listened to God and faithfully spoke his word. So it says that none of his words fell to the ground. They all faithfully came true. We see how God used Samuel to deliver the people of Israel once again from the Philistines. And so God is showing them this great prophet bringing truth through him. But last week, Dr. Butner, he preached on how in all of this, Israel still comes and they ask Samuel to give them a king so that they can be like all of the other nations around them. And understandably, Samuel, who's been leading them, who's been judging and giving them guidance, he takes this personally as a rejection of him. But God speaks to Samuel and says, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me as their king. We see that Israel doesn't need to ask for a king because they already have a king in God. Uh, Who came after 400 years of slavery in Egypt? Who came and delivered them with incredible power? Who led them through the Red Sea and opened a way for them into rescue? Who provided for them again and again and again in their wandering in the wilderness? And who faithfully brought them into the land he promised to give them? Their one king, the one true God who's been with them faithful throughout. They don't need a king. They already have one. And so God knows this request, is a, it's a rejection of him. It's helpful for me, though, because I see that even as I love to find shortcut saviors, you with me? Shortcut saviors that I can lean on, that I feel like I control, that I know what they can give me. So Israel wants to find a shortcut savior rather than trusting in God. But even as God mercifully continues to pursue you and I in the midst of our rejection of him, so he continues to pursue Israel and mercifully works through this rejection of him to bring them a true and greater king than what they even imagine. So follow along with me as the story continues here in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapter 9 and chapter 10 here today. I'll be telling the story as I have been and just drawing out some things for us to see as we go through it. But there's details I won't be mentioning, so I'd love if you just follow along in your Bible with me. The story starts with a pretty seemingly random event. There's a man named Kish who's from the tribe and the land of Benjamin in Israel, and he's lost his donkeys, lost the herd of donkeys. And so this is a little bit more annoying than probably losing your keys, but maybe not so much more uncommon in their day, right? So he's lost these donkeys. What is he going to do? He sends out his son named Saul along with a servant to find them. Now it tells us Saul, he's, he's no ordinary Joshmo. He's no ordinary guy. It says that Saul is as handsome as any man in Israel. And on top of that, he's also a head taller than everybody else. So he's a pretty extraordinary young guy. Stands out among the rest, literally. So it says that he's really impressive. However, his donkey finding skills aren't quite so amazing says that for several days they're searching and cannot find the donkeys. It's as if they go from Sterling to Lyons, Lyons to Little River, over to Chase. They can't find them anywhere in the vicinity. They're nowhere to be found. 
So after a while, Saul's thinking, man, I, I bet my father and family, they're probably more worried about us now than they are about the donkeys because we've been gone so long. And his servant chimes in, though, with an idea. He says, actually, I know we are really near the hometown of this incredible man of God. And if we go to this man of God, he'll be able to tell us where the donkeys are. Like way better than Google or Apple Maps. This is the way to go. So they love this idea. This is perfect. Let's go and talk to this man of God. And so Saul and his servant, they begin to make their way to this town. And they're heading up the hill into the town when these young women are coming out of the town to draw water. And they ask them, is, is the man of God here? Maybe he's gone on a journey. Is he around? And they say, he's actually just come back. And he's literally right ahead of you, about to come out of the town. So if you hurry up the hill, you'll find him. It's important because it's just perfect timing. So Saul and his servant, they rush up the hill. And who do they see coming out of this town but Samuel? So this man of God the servant was referring to wasn't just any prophet, wasn't just any man of God. This is the Samuel, the one whose word never falls to the ground. This is the Samuel that Israel has just come to requesting a king. So it should give us some sense that there's a lot more going on here than just missing donkeys. So they see Samuel. But because Samuel is a true prophet, because he really does hear from the Lord. He already is expecting Saul and the servant. So as soon as he sees them, he realizes this is one who God has spoken to him about. For it says earlier, it says in verse 13, it says that the Lord had told Samuel the day before, he says, hear this, I will send you a man from the tribe of Benjamin around this time tomorrow, and you are to anoint him the ruler of my people Israel. And so as soon as Samuel sees Saul, the Lord tells him, this is the man I was telling you about. Notice the incredible detail building up to this moment, though. How it seems full of accidental and random wanderings, but it's actually God's leading. And notice how God says to Samuel, I will send you a man from the tribe of Benjamin. And then when Saul shows up, he says, this is the man. But we know there's been no conversation between God and Saul. There's been no revelation or vision for Saul to realize I need to go to Samuel. Rather, what there has been is lost donkeys. You see this? What there has been is three days of wandering all over the place. What there has been is a suggestion by his servant to go to this town. And so we see that this, hear me, this is God's sending. This was his leading all the way along. That God is sovereignly leading our lives even when we feel like we're wandering all over the place. He's actually sovereignly in control and directing our steps. Is this not good news for you and I? that often we feel like we are lost, that we don't know where we're headed, that we're in a season of confusion. It seems like, is there really a divine thread leading my life? I don't think that's the case. But how helpful to see here that what appears like accidental wandering is actually God's purposeful leading. 
what seems like disconnected all over the place is God directing Saul. What good news. This is the same for you and I. Be encouraged. It says this in Proverbs chapter 16. It says, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Or again, later in Proverbs chapter 20, it says this, a person's steps are directed by the Lord. (laughs) How then can anyone understand their own way? So what God is doing here for Saul and leading him, even though it seems like wandering, is exactly what God does in our lives. Who can understand their own way? It looks like I'm wandering all over the place, but God is directing my steps. Notice the tension here, though, in Proverbs. I love this, that it calls these steps our own, that we take these steps that we have initiative and responsibility on the one hand. We're not expecting God to pick us up and carry us through life and make all these decisions for us. There are steps. We need to decide them. We need to take them. But yet at the same time, God also knows already and is determining and leading our path. While this can be confusing to us and seem impossible, how is it my step yet also him knowing it's going to take place? It can be mind-blowing to us, but it is incredibly practical. Helps our lives deeply because it calls us to take responsibility in our lives. It calls us to take the initiative and not to be passive, but realize I need to take steps in my life. I need to move forward. But at the same time, it builds trust in us. It humbles us, gives us security, because especially in these moments when we feel like I have lost it, I have no idea what I'm doing with my life, where is God? It helps us remember, Lord, I've been trying to plan my course, but you've been directing my steps. So let me sit back in humble trust in you because it feels like I've made a huge mistake. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know why I'm investing in this. What am I doing with this person? And God says, no, I have been leading you the entire time. So let's you sit back in trust and confidence. God is sovereignly leading our lives. What good news. The story continues. says that when Saul sees Samuel, he asks him, are you the seer? Because Samuel's aware of what's going on. Saul has no idea. Are you the seer? This is where we realize it had to be a lot of fun being Samuel, right? Where you're aware of things and God's speaking into you, this is going to be great to reveal. And he says, yes, I am the seer. I'm the prophet. And then he immediately tells them, the donkeys that you've been looking for the past three days have already been found. You don't need to worry about them anymore. And this is before Saul has a chance to communicate to him his situation and what he's even there looking for. And Samuel resolves it before a word gets off of his mouth. And this would get my attention, but Samuel's about to up the ante. Now that he's set aside the issue of the donkeys, he speaks to Saul and says, you are the one that all of Israel is desiring. You're the one that all of Israel has been waiting for. And Saul's no fool. He knows what this means. All of Israel has been desiring and waiting for a king. And he realizes that Samuel saying he's the anointed one, he is the king. But we get a bit of fear and maybe some hiding 
in Saul. See that, a bit of fear and hiding in Saul because he says, who am I? And what is my family that I would be king? Seems to reject this, but Samuel is not so easily put off. He invites Saul to this great feast, gives him the place of honor, the best food at the table. He's treating him like the king already. The next morning, he anoints him with oil, which is the traditional way of proclaiming someone is king. They will be king. He's anointed with oil. And on top of that, incredibly, Samuel gives very specific instructions to Saul about what he will encounter on his way home. He wants to build confidence in him, seeing that God really has called you to be king. I'm not just making this up, so he gives him specific signs of what he'll encounter on his way home. And hear this, Samuel says, when you leave, you'll arrive at Rachel's tomb, which was a well-known landmark, and he says that you'll come across two men, and they will tell you that the donkeys that you've been searching for have already been found. And after that, at the great tree of Tabor, again, another famous spot, he said, you'll come across three men. One of them will be carrying three young goats, one of them will be carrying three loaves of bread, and the other will be carrying a a flask of wine, some wine. And so he says, also, after this, when you arrive at your hometown in Gibeah, you'll see a procession of prophets coming down. And they'll be having lyres and timbrels and and pipes and harps. They'll be playing worship and and, and worshiping, playing music and worshiping. He says, when you see them, the Spirit of God will come upon you powerfully, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. And notice how incredibly specific all of these signs are that God is giving. He's being incredible. He's not just saying you're going to run into a bump on the road on your way home, right? He's not saying someone's going to smile at you while you pass them. He's giving very specific signs. A guy carrying three goats, someone carrying three loaves of bread, they're going to give you two very specific signs of what he'll encounter on his way home so that it would build confidence in him that he really is the anointed one. He really is going to be king. Hear this good truth. God is sovereignly highlighting his anointed one. What's this mean for you and I? God is sovereignly, in power, in control, knowing all things, highlighting, giving a sign for his anointed one. What God does here for Saul, he does for his greater and even more true anointed one in Jesus. Now we are given signs of his coming. He says that he will be born in the town of Bethlehem, yet he will come from the land of Galilee and be called a Nazarene. Do you know who this is? It says that he will be a light to the Gentiles. He'll come to the Jews, but he'll be a light for the whole world. He'll be a descendant of David, yet also a prophet like Moses. Do you know who this is? And he says that he will come into Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey. That his true anointed one will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That his true anointed will be hung up on a tree for all the sea and his side will be pierced for our iniquities. Do you know who this is? And he says that his true anointed one will not see decay even in his death, but will be raised to life and vindicated. Do we know who this is? 
that repeatedly throughout Scripture, God is giving us signs so that we would be having, have a confidence of, his, of who his true king is, who the true anointed one is. And this is Jesus, incomparable. And that all of these signs were clearly written before Jesus was ever born, and they were also clearly fulfilled by Jesus in his life. So even as God gave these signs to Saul to give him confidence to build his trust, so he has given us these signs to build our confidence, to give us trust that Jesus Christ truly is the Messiah, the true and greater anointed one. So have you seen this? Do you have confidence in him? Are you trusting him? It says that Saul then left, made his way home, and all of these signs were fulfilled, all of them. Even when he got to his hometown in Gibeah and the prophets were coming down, Saul was powerfully overwhelmed by the Spirit of God and began to prophesy with the other prophets. And interestingly, the people from his hometown are shocked by this as though Saul is the last person they would expect to be overcome by the Spirit of God and prophesying. So much so that it became a saying among the people, is Saul also among the prophets? If, if this incredible thing happened, why, why not other incredible things? So is, is Saul also among the prophets, they would say, when something shocking happened? This raises a question, though, for us. But what kind of character and what kind of man is Saul that would lead the people of his hometown to be so surprised that he's prophesying, that he's overcome with the Spirit of God? What kind of man has he been? Is he really going to be the true king? This wonder begins to grow when Saul gets home and his family asks, where have you been? And he tells them a bit about Samuel and his uncle asks him more specifically, what did Samuel tell you? But Saul only says, he told me about the donkeys, but says nothing about how Samuel told him he would be king. He hides that information. Why? We see this hiding is just beginning for Saul. Even as he's hesitant to enter into this role, Samuel is quick to move forward. He knows God's chosen a king. He's making it happen. He calls all of Israel to gather together at a town called Mizpah. And they bring them all together, and Samuel reminds them how God has done great work and delivered them time and time again, but they have nonetheless rejected God as their king and have requested someone else instead. And it seems like the perfect moment to then tell them about Saul. But that's not what Samuel does. He trusts that God will reveal this in his own way. So they begin to cast lots for who will be king. Samuel confident that God will reveal it. So they cast lots, and the tribe of Benjamin is chosen. They narrow it down even more, and Saul's family is chosen. Narrow it down even more, once again, Saul himself is chosen by lots out of all of Israel. And they begin to look for him, because everyone's supposed to be at this gathering, but they cannot find Saul. They're looking everywhere, wondering if he even came to this gathering. Finally, someone finds him, get this, hiding among the luggage. He's not even with the people. He's hiding among the luggage. I mean, this is the same Saul that has been anointed by Samuel, 
This is the same Saul that has been given sign after sign after sign that he would be king. This is the same Saul that's been overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. How could he still have doubt? How could he still be hiding in the luggage? It makes me wonder where I would be. You with me? How many things God has spoken so powerfully that I should have confidence in? Be it time and again, I want to hide and not believe and live in doubt rather than the clear word God's spoken. The incredible things he does in our lives, but you give us time and we begin to question and we want to hide. So they finally bring Saul out. And then Samuel says, see, see this man whom the Lord has chosen. There is no one else like him in all of Israel. Because how handsome he is, how tall he is. And the people say, long live the king. Seems a fitting end to this story. Saul is proclaimed king. But you also should feel in the story, something is a bit off. Something's not quite right with Saul. Uh, externally, he seems like he's got everything together. He's been proclaimed king. He looks like a king. But really, is he truly going to follow God? Does he really have a heart to know and follow him? Begin to see clues that maybe this is not the one God will ultimately choose. Maybe he's not the real king that they'd be longing for. We see a clue of this back in Verse 8 of chapter 10, look with me there. It's a very, very odd verse here in the midst of this whole story about Saul. It says this in verse 8, very strangely, as Saul, I'm rather Samuel's giving all of these signs of what he will encounter on his way home. He gives all of these signs, and at the very end, he says this. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. This is very odd because we know Saul is not headed to Gilgal. He's headed to Gibeah, his hometown. Why in the world is Samuel mentioning that he needs to wait seven days at a city he's not even headed to? Plus, there's zero instruction about why is there a sacrifice? Why does he need to wait seven days? What in the world is going on? Just dropped right in the middle of this story, very odd command. But we need to remember that this whole story is about how God knows all things past, present, and future. He is sovereignly aware of everything. We have a God who is outside of time, who sees all things and knows all things. So it's fitting that in this story, highlighting how God has an understanding beyond what we could imagine, God would put in there a detail, not just about what Saul would encounter on his way home, but he puts in here a detail that foreshadows how Saul will ultimately fail and be undone. That here at the very beginning of him being king, God is showing that he knows where Saul will one day fail. And we see this later in chapter 13 that Saul will be at Gilgal. And he will be there waiting seven days for Samuel to show up and make a sacrifice. And do you think Saul waits? Do you think that Saul follows this command given to him at the beginning? No, Saul will fail, and this will be his undoing as king. 
But hear this, hear this good news with me, King's Cross. This, this means so much to me. God already sovereignly knows our failures, even our future failures. This is such good news to me, though. We sometimes come with this idea, Christian or not, that God accepts us in the hope of what we will one day be. <laughs> we think that God looks at us and says, man, you're pretty rough right now, but maybe I can do some work in you and you might be a really great asset in my kingdom. You could be a really good disciple. So we come in and we think we're chosen and loved by him on the basis of maybe how we could get our life together one day. But then we're left with this feeling that when we fail in our following him, we wonder if God's just disappointed. And he looks at us like, oh man, I really regret ever making you my own. I really had such hope for you and who you would be, but man, I had no idea it would take you so long. And although we would rarely say this out loud, is that not how our hearts sometimes operate with God? Maybe you expected more from me. Maybe you're really disappointed in me. Maybe you had no idea it would take me this long to grow. But is it not such good news that God already sovereignly knew all of your failures, past, present, and future, before he ever called you? That he did not reach out to you on the basis of who you would one day be? <laughs> He's not thinking, oh man, I hope they can get this together. I really need them to live in a better way. He was not saving you on the basis that you might one day be good enough, but on the basis that Jesus Christ is already good enough for him, for us, for all of us. And so that I know I'm not expecting some future righteousness of my own, but I have been given freely a righteousness of Jesus that I could never improve. So God already knows all my mistakes in the past, in the now, in the future, and he's not shocked He's not living in hope, crossing his fingers that maybe I'll do better to earn this. I could never earn it. So he chooses you and I and loves, loves you and I, knowing every mistake you will be making in the rest of your life. Such is his kindness to us. So let your heart let go of those expectations that you need to prove yourself to him. Let your heart let go that he's somehow disappointed with you that already from the beginning, his grace was far more than enough. Not at all that this would be permission that we then could go sin and live all the ways that we want. We know he's calling us to something different. But again, do you see that his grace was always, always more than enough for you and I? I'm going to call the band back up. We can worship a little bit more.